So if you've been with us um, the, last, uh, the last couple of weeks, we are walking into teaching the book of James uh, coming up in, in March. We're going to start in the book of James. But we wanted to frame the book of James correctly because um, uh, we think the book of James is, is pretty, pretty misunderstood um, a lot of times. It's easy to think of James as like practical Christianity. Um, like uh, people want to know, and like if you want to know how to live the Christian life, read the book of James. The book of James contains over 50 imperatives, 50 commands, like do this or don't do this. Uh, it's, in, it's easy to think of it in, um, in the wrong context. The book of James is still a, de- a deeply, deeply spiritual book. Um, James isn't concerned with practicalities of the Christian life so much as he's concerned about the wholeness of the Christian. Um, it's not enough for us to just be about loving God. Uh, we need to love our neighbor. We love our neighbors, we love ourselves. The whole point of the book of James is to drive home the importance of the second commandment. That yes, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, you certainly love your neighbor. Uh, but the question then becomes, you know, how do you, how do you love your neighbor? And we were talking about that. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, which leads us into the discussion that we've been having the last couple of weeks, or the teaching that we've been having the last couple of weeks, which is about sonship. We've been talking about sonship. Two weeks ago, we talked about the definitions of sonship, the concept of identity in Christ. Last week, we talked about legitimacy, what it means for us to be legitimate, like a fully adopted son of God. Just as a reminder, um, if you're a woman, you're still a son of God. If you're a man, you're still the bride of Christ. You reflect the personhood of your father, both male and female, together. All right, so... um, uh, we've been talking a lot about these things, and, and, and the last couple of weeks have been what they generally are at, at Cornerstone. Um, I teach sonship uh, about once a year uh, because it's just, I think it's the absolute most important thing, you know. Um, it, it's what we're rooted and grounded in. It's our identity. It's our basis. It's where we're formed from. Um, if, if you receive sonship in your life and don't receive anything else ever, then you are well on your way to living a full and meaningful life with Christ. Um, Sonship is, is just so deeply, deeply important. And it strikes at the very core of who we are. Uh, th- this sonship concept, the sonship teaching, like it strikes at the very center, the deepest part of who we are, the part that is redeemed by God, the part that is set apart for him. The beauty of sonship is that the enemy has no claim to it. Right? That it is fully, completely sealed in God. And the enemy comes against us with deception and with accusation, with words. He tries to get us to question God's words. Um, the question is always, will you listen to God? You know, sonship is always about listening. Um, it's, it's always about listening. It's always about letting God identify you. We ended last week talking about Peter walking on the water. Remember that? And about who did Peter lose faith in? He didn't lose faith in Jesus. Jesus was walking on the water. He lost faith in his ability to be like Christ. When Jesus said, oh, you have little faith, he was talking to Peter. Like, why didn't you believe that what I called you to be and to do, you could be and do? Which is the same question that a lot of us ask, the same question that you might be asking. One thing that I hear a lot every time that I teach sonship is, okay, Jay, like, so how do I walk this out? Like, how do I live this practically? Okay, I, I believe what you're saying. I feel what you're saying. Um, yeah, I understand that, like, our, my identity uh, but I, I, I want to take this thing, I want to embrace it, and I want to live from it. I don't want to be pulled off of it. I want to be solid in, in my sonship. Like, how do I live this? And um, if you've ever asked me that question, you've probably gotten a really lousy answer from me. Um, because, like, there isn't a one, two, three step. There's no formula to give you. 
Uh, and so, like, uh, I've been thinking about this over the course of the last few, uh, few years, because the last time I taught this was in 2011. No, the last time I taught this was at the end of 2012. Um, every time I teach this, every time I teach sonship at Cornerstone, people leave. People leave our church. Uh, I don't know if you know that. When I, when I teach sonship, my main prayer is that you folks would stay connected. And I think people leave because this so strikes at their core, they get afraid and they run. And there's a lot of different reasons. People never leave angrily when I teach on sonship. They're just sort of like, oh, I love what you're doing here. See you later. Um, it's, it's, it's just like that. It's just like that because it hits them right in the core. It goes right after their wounds. It steps on their nerve. And, and, and they bolt because of it. In the last two weeks, we've lost four people. It's, it's that thing. So if you have an inclination to leave Cornerstone after today, like just check yourself or talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to Matt. Talk to just... I just thought I'd throw that out there. It was an observation that the Lord brought to me this past week. Like, huh, did you ever think about this? No, I never thought about that. Um, but, but I do think that it's, it is really, really interesting. And I'm trying not to be a jerk. If I'm being a jerk up here the last couple of weeks, somebody tell me. Um, you know, I don't want to throw people uh, away or push people away uh, or anything like that. I do want us to be together, solidly rooted in Christ. Um, so that being said, there's that. Um, and I, I have an answer now to this, like, how do I walk this thing out? I doubt very much you're going to like the answer um, because it's not very much of an answer. It's not a good answer, but at least I have something for you. Um, so, so that's interesting. That being said, I think we'll just jump in with both feet. I'm going to get to my main point later instead of talking about it now, and I, I think it'll make more sense. It has a lot to do with these paintings and with you and me and so on and so forth. So uh, I hope you're up for it. Are you up for it? Okay, good. Um, Take your Bibles. Go to Ephesians 1 first. Ephesians 1. I'm going to start at the beginning. At the beginning of the book, I'm going to read the first 14 verses, which, by the way, is the longest run-on sentence you will ever read in your life. Uh, (laughs) The Apostle Paul just, like, he takes such grammatical, like, liberties. It's it's awesome. I I really love it. He's more poet than he is anything else, I think. Number 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is the beloved, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now what you just read was your basic standing in Christ the foundation of who you are, 
right? Included in that, one of the very first names that you're given is that you were set apart beforehand to be adopted as a son. It's God that adopted you as a son. He did that. He lavished his love out on you by joining you to his beloved. It's there in verse 6. At the end of verse 6, if that word beloved there for you isn't capitalized, capitalize it. It should be. Right? You have the, the love that you receive is the love that Jesus receives. Right? So here you have God the Father right, calling us into adoption as sons through his own son, through Jesus. We have redemption. We have forgiveness, grace, wisdom, insight. We have purpose. And verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That's the key right there. You are not just in Christ. You are united to Christ. The concept of being in Christ has everything to do with union. Let me hear you say union. Union, that's right. United with, right? United with. It is, it is two things that were formerly separate being brought together in. The, the phrase in Christ, right, sums up the totality of what it means, but, but we never reach the depths of it. Like, we can learn all we want to learn about being in Christ, and will there always be more to receive and more to be about when it comes to being in Christ? God the Father, he loves us, he adopts us as sons through the love that he has for his son, forgiveness, grace, wisdom, insight, union with Christ. And this union with Christ is then, as you can see in verse uh, down at the bottom, 13, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This union with, with Christ is then wrapped up in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself puts the stamp on who you are. You are united to Christ, you are a son of God, you are in him, joined forever, united to Jesus, right? Wrapped up in God. Colossians says it, that you are hidden with Christ in God, right? Colossians says it again when he says that all things are brought together in Christ and all things are held together by Christ. God desires to have the supremacy of his son in and over and above all things. And you and I being united to Christ in that, we join with God's heart by lifting up the supremacy of Jesus. Right? You are united to Christ. You are in him. Flip back a few pages to 2 Peter. 2 Peter just before 1 John. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Right? Did you catch that? So that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All right, Peter starts off here telling you that you, just right off the get-go, folks, this is the way he starts the book. This is not his great summation. Right? His starting point, his foundation point, is you have everything. You lack nothing. Everything you need for your life and everything you live to live like Jesus in that life has been given to you in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, 
right? And you are a partaker of the divine nature. That word partaker, that concept of partaker, that is the in Christ. That is the union with Jesus. John 17. I'm just going to keep beating away at Revelation, right? And we'll start to throw some pictures in here, and it'll help some things come together. In John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer, right? Jesus prays um, for three things in the high priestly prayer. First, he prays for himself. Secondly, he prays for his disciples, like the 12 that are with him. And then he prays for you and me. We're going to pick it up at that one, at the third one, when when he prays for you and I. He specifically says this in verse 20. When he's praying, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Right? That's you and me. We, have, we believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles and prophets. Right? What, that, that is the foundation of the church, is the apostles and prophets. So I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, now pay attention to the word in, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay, so what's Jesus' heart for you in his prayer here? Um, the, the, the theme is, is raucous and loud, right? That you would receive your union with Christ. That you would see yourself united to and in him. Right? Jesus has just come off all kinds of pictures of this. I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Remain in me and I will remain in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You are my sheep. I am your shepherd. You are in my flock. If I lose one of you, I go and look for him. I bring him back in. You can never not be part of my flock. No one can pluck you out of my hand. You are in me. You, me, together, boom, in. Everybody got it? Boom, in part, that's Greek. Um, All right. All right, this this is some... Key foundational stuff, right? So take those three passages, Ephesians 1, that Trinitarian work. Did you see it? Father adopting, giving you the sonship that Jesus has through the love of the beloved, sealed in the Holy Spirit. Second Peter, God's divine power is giving you everything you need for life and godliness so that you can be a partaker in the divine nature. John 17, Jesus' prayer for you, that you are in him just as he is in the Father, that we are perfectly in Perfectly one. That's the idea. Everybody got it? All right, that's, that's box compartment number one. So lock that up. Keep that revelation there. We're setting it over here. Here's something that makes me angry. 
the scriptures do not start at Genesis 3. And dang it, I'm sick and tired of evangelistic methods that start with sin. Sin is not the beginning. What's the beginning? In the beginning, God. That's right. In the beginning, God. We give sin, we give the enemy this big title as the beginning of all things, you know? It's, it, it's ridiculous. Andy Crouch does some great work on this as far as some writing. If you've ever read any of Andy's stuff, uh, culturemakers.com, his book, Culture Making, he has a lot to talk about with this, where he talks about like the, rede- the, the way that you live redemptively is to let the scriptures be the scriptures completely so that the beginning of all things is not sin. If the beginning of all things is sin, and if you and I are sinners, right, this is his major point, if, you, if that's the beginning of all things, then that means that God is subservient to that. If it, that and that means that the fir- you realize what the first thing that God says then to his people is. If you start the Bible at Genesis 3, the first thing he communicates to his people is what? Where are you? Where are you? If you start the, book at Gen- if you start the story at Genesis 3, you have a God who's lost himself. You have a God who's sort of confused by the situation. Oh. <laughs> right? Yeah, God is not. The cricket sound is perfect. It's like, <laughs> I'm sorry that that happens, but that was just perfect. Well done. Good job. Right? Yeah. That, that's prophetically not turning your phone off. Good job. Well, well done. All right. In the beginning, God, right? The, this whole story starts with God. The, the whole thing starts with God. And you know where else it ends up? Right, it ends with God. It does not end with you and me. You and me in heaven is not the end. Well, we think it is. All right, our evangelistic method is like, oh, look, sin's a big problem. You're a big problem. Uh, you're a big problem to God because you got out of line. If you get in line, then God will grace you with his mercy, and then you can follow him. Um, and the whole point is to get out of here. Right? Like, dear Lord, let the rapture be true, even though the scriptures don't use the word. Um, you know, like, get me out of here, you know, uh, and... True. Someday when it's over, I'll fly away. Um, if you start the book at Genesis 3 and if you end at Revelation 20, that's the salvation story that you get. That sin is a problem that God has to fix. Right? And that you're a problem that God has to fix. And that's just such a dumbing down of the heart of God. So let's go back to the beginning. Right? Let's go back to the beginning because understanding the beginning is the key to understanding union in Christ. Union with Christ, right? At the beginning of all things is God, right? Before the text even starts, before the world's even made, before anything has come into the existence that we think of as existence, before in and over all things is God. So I've set up a small representation of, of this concept, of, of this idea, right? With some, with some, uh, with some art. Anytime that you try and explain the Trinity humanly, you, you fall short, so, you know. Just remember that. Give me a break. Um, but, you know, here we've got, we've got God the Son. Right? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the fire. We have the Father, creator, sustainer, the beginner, right? the one who makes, things, uh, who makes things grow. And this whole idea of Trinity is the beginning of all things. Right? This is God in and with himself. Father, Son, and Spirit existing together. 
we miss the importance of this because we tend to, to think of it like this. We tend to think of it without, without the fourth painting, right? which I'll get to in just a second. Um, but this is what we, we tend to do. Right? Now, Second Peter told us to be a partaker of the divine nature. Right? We, we, are, we are partakers of the divine nature. But here's what happens. Right? This, is what we, this is what we tend to do. What's your name? Alex. I knew that. You play goalie on my son's team. Yeah, you're a good keeper. All right. We tend to sit here and think, oh, there's God. He's the Trinity. Isn't that nice? There's the Son over there. Here's the Holy Spirit here. There's God the Father over there. It's this unsearchable mystery. And our job basically is to observe it. Right? Our job basically is to sort of sit here and to know that this is true. Actually, the Trinity is the, Trinity is the, is, is the key concept in all Christian faith, th- th- this idea. And it's such a key concept that, that we, uh, we do it a severe injustice to not give it the, the merit that it's due. Because what we're looking at right here is three static paintings, right? These things, these things are sort of there and they're together. But what we miss in this is, is a key concept of the Trinity that takes these things, that takes these three separate persons, which we understand them to be, right? Which is basically that, look, God the Son is God in the same way that God the Holy Spirit and God the Father are God. God the Father is God in the same way that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are God. God the Holy Spirit is God in the same way that God the Son and God the Father is God. All three of these, this is one person, no, I'm sorry, uh, one substance, one, one God, three persons that are revealed. And, and, and there you have it. That's the basic doctrine of the Trinity. Um, the problem is, is that this falls severely short of what's actually going on before the story ever starts. There's an old concept. There's an old church father's concept um, that's in play when we think about the Trinity. Uh, can you put that first slide up for me, please, Zach? All right, it's the word perichoresis. All right, perichoresis. Let me hear you say perichoresis. All right, say it again. Perichoresis. All right, perichoresis has become like a way of thinking about the, the, the Trinity. It's a pretty beautiful way to think about the Trinity because the way that we think about the Trinity um, has so much more to do than with just like three static persons of divinity that sort of like stand there and we watch God the Son, you know, sort of like step out into grand point of history and die on the cross. And then he sort of goes into the grave while the Holy Spirit does some work in there, you know, and then God the Father raises. And here comes the God the Son again, you know, and there, there, there's the God that we know. And then he goes back up to heaven. Now the Holy Spirit's working. Nobody really understands that, you know. God the Son and God the Father are sort of up in heaven, looking down and, uh, you know, taking care of things. We know that God the Son is interceding for us. Like, these are the way that we think about these things. God's there, right? And the Holy Spirit is somewhere. The Holy Spirit's in me. We all know that. We don't actually know what that means a lot of times because we don't understand uh, that the Holy Spirit being in us is, is bigger, wider, vaster than what we actually understand because it's actually about more, the Godhead is more about than what we've given it credit. And this word perichoresis, like it gives some legitimacy to that. It gives it a concept to put to it. The, the, the concept of perichoresis is the idea of a divine dance, right? The word choreography starts with C-H-O-R, right? Um, so this like per- perichoresis idea is this idea that, that God 
It's, it's not three thrones in line, right? It's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sitting here in line, sort of like lined up. And we go in and we go, okay, who do I want to pray to today? I'm gonna, I need to talk to Jesus because I need blood today. Now, I, I need revelation over here, so I'll talk to the Holy Spirit over here. And I just need some love and comfort. So, you know, Father, will you just hold me? That's modalism. Right? That means that we, just, we, we take God, we separate him from the other sides of himself, and we just say, you know, just bring yourself to me like you, like I want you to be in this situation here. Um, it's not that at all. Um, perichoresis has this idea. Next slide, please, Zach. It's an intimate union. An intimate union. It's, it's a mutual indwelling. A mutual interpretation of the three members of the Trinity with and within one another. All right? Perichoresis has action at its core. Perichoresis has this idea that I am in you and I am for you. I am toward you. Right? This is God looking at himself. The Father is looking at the Son and, and, and he is indwelling there. And it is a mutual indwelling. He is as much for the Son as the Son is for him as the Holy Spirit is for the both of them. And there is this dynamic what the church fathers would call dance, that happens. Now, the action from a linguistic standpoint actually has a whole lot more to do with the pointing, with the towardness, with the look at him, look at him, look at him, than it does like them in this beautiful square dance or something like that. Um, But the idea of motion and of momentum, of energy in this trinity is at the core of what it means for God to be three in one. Next slide, please, Zach. Perichoresis is an ongoing Mutual self-giving and a mutual indwelling within the divine community of the Trinity. Right? It is this ongoing, like I am giving myself to you. It is the Father giving the glory to his Son. It is Jesus saying, I am not here to represent me. I am not saying anything on my own. I only say what my Father gives me. It's Jesus saying, You don't understand what I'm telling you right now. And I'm not going to tell you what I'm telling you right now. Because there's a spirit of truth is coming to lead you into all the depths of what I've given you. Listen to him. Listen to him. Follow him. Right? It, it 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 is this idea that you are fully given into. The action is the giving. The action is the pointing. The action is the towardness. Right? And all of the members of the Godhead produce this activity where it's there's this motion that's happening this ongoing dance between the godhead of the trinity next slide please that the emphasis is that each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being but the emphasis of perichoresis is that each one holds the other at the center at the core of who they are so god the father receives all the glory that God the Son and that God the Holy Spirit give him. And they are completely not self-seeking, but rather serving, pointing toward glorifying him. 
God the Son and God the Father, completely, completely toward, completely about, focused on the glory of the Holy Spirit, the revelation that comes by him increasing in the world. The Holy Spirit is all about pointing to the work of God the Son, the heart of God the Father, right? And these two things coming together in this beautiful thing, right? This is the story before the story begins. God has existed in this perichoresis for all eternity and is completely, completely satisfied and, and uh, content and complete in and of himself. And in this dance that these three things, that these three persons, one God, three persons, in this dance, in this pointing toward, in this indwelling, in this towardness, in this love, comes this incredible life. I mean, you know why God made the world, right? Revelation 4, God made the world because he wanted to. God didn't make the world because he, he needed to express his love better. Well, some people tell us that. I don't buy that. I think God was completely lovingly, fully self-expressed right here in this community, in this perichoresis. He was fully in it. He didn't need humans to love better. God did this because he wanted to. You know why Jesus went to the cross? Because he wanted to. He wanted to honor his father. He wanted to love you and I. Right? You know why the Holy Spirit came in and dwelled? So he could point us back to Jesus. So he could reveal the heart of the Father to us. So he could lead us into all truth. Right? This, this dynamic, this, this dance, this whirling, this, this thing that happens produces this beautiful, all this color, all this life. Right? This is a painting from one of, one of our artists. and She took uh, a bunch of Lebanon Daily News Articles about brokenness, about pain, shootings, murders, uh, robbery, thievery, uh, domestic violence, all these kinds of things. She took all these different articles and she cut them out. And this was actually uh, an Easter Sunday painting. And um, she had the stuff ready, but on Easter Sunday she painted this with all of these colors and all of this life and all of this beauty, all of this redemption, taking these broken, terrible things and turning them into these things that are beautiful and flying. This is the, the resurrection as a result of perichoresis. Resurrection life, color, energy, goodness. All right, the church fathers would also say that from this dance, from this whirl, from this looking at and pointing toward, that this is where creation happened. I mean, imagine the amount of energy that comes from God focusing on God and magnifying and glorifying himself revealed in these three distinct persons. I mean, how much is there? How much creative life is in that spot? Right? And so now that we understand perichoresis, you, you can clear that, Zach. Uh, now that we understand perichoresis and, and the divine dance, this is, still, this is still what we do, right? We still stand here and go, man, isn't it great to watch God dance? Alex, did you see him move just now? Incredible. Like, look at the Holy Spirit on the move. That is, that is so cool to watch, the Holy Spirit. It, it's great to see people come to Christ. It's really neat to see people receive their sonship. Right? And we're sitting out here and we're observing this dance. And if you're listening to me talk about perichoresis and you're listening to me talk about the divine dance, you probably think to yourself, uh, you know, well, I've, I've heard that before or that's an interesting way to think about it. Or, you know, um, you know, this is, yeah, I can see how God would be that. Sure, totally. What we're missing is that this concept of perichoresis 
is not meant to be done the way that I'm doing it. You are not an observer of the dance. To be in Christ means that you are invited into the dance. That you are contained and held within this. You are not God. You are not made another person of the Godhead or, or anything like that. But at its core, like if we really want to get down to it, when we think about perichoresis and what perichoresis is really meant to be, it's so much more than just us watching. Watching God do his thing. You know, hoping that at some point he meets us the way that he met my friend. It's more than us just sort of like sitting back and hoping that at some point in time, you know, we get included in the grand story, that something really good happens. Maybe God will give me a calling. Maybe he'll give me something to do that brings me meaning and life. All of those things is observing God. All of those things are about observing who God is and the life that he gives, you know, to the world or to other people or whatever it might be. But in reality, that leaves us on the out. Perichoresis is this. This is perichoresis. You are in the dance. How big is God? Right? There's the Father, and here's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit, and there's this dynamism, and this world, and this beauty, and this movement, And for you to be in Christ means that you see yourself as someone who is in his life. When God looks at his church, this is what he sees. You in him. You're in it, right? Father, Son, Spirit, and here's you. You are invited into this work. You are a partaker of the divine nature. You in Christ, you in Jesus, this is, I mean, what does Jesus pray for? He prays that we would be perfectly one. And then he describes that perfect oneness. What does he say that the perfect oneness is? Let's look at it again. Go to John 17 again. It's worth seeing with your own eyeballs. The glory, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. How? How does he want us to be one? Even as we are one. Does anyone here have the ability to pull that off? Right? Does any marriage want to stand up here and give testimony to the fact that, yes, we're we're perfectly one? (laughs) We've got it. You know? Any parents and kids want to stand up and be like, yep, everything's always great? Right? Any friends want to stand up and say, no, we've never had conflict. We're great friends. Never had conflict. You know? It's been amazing the whole time. I'll show you a shallow friendship. You know? um, we are called to be one even as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. 
We have zero capability of that. We have no ability to do that. We could no sooner figure that out than we could jump over the moon. So that means that we're going to need some help, right? It actually means we're going to need complete help. What the scriptures would call salvation. What the scriptures would say is rescue. A re-identification. A reworking. Whereby we ourselves have no clue what it means to live in oneness together. We could no sooner be one like God is one you know, than, than anything else in the world. It's completely impossible. But we don't need to. Jesus, right, through the blood of Christ, through the adoption from God our Father, from the sealing of the Holy Spirit, we are placed into the dance. Right? Your work, your, and the work that we do is, is, is meant to be an act of beauty. It's meant to be this thing. It's meant to be this movement with God. Right? These guys are my favorite ones. Because sometimes you'll notice they're in perfect synchronization. Other times it's just two of them. Other times it's just one of them that's moving. The other two are sort of like standing off to the side, like sort of looking at him quizzically. I, I have no idea if these guys are trying to do perichoresis or not, but they're doing a darn good job of it. You know, it's this synchronicity, the idea that we are all together in this, that this stage, this world, this all of this belongs to God, and me trying to live out and work out my sonship in myself, and thinking God wants me to do this, and he wants me to talk like this, and give like this, and walk like this, and, and, and act like this, and dress like this, and be friends with these people, but not be friends with these people, and all of these things, that is a just really lousy dance. You know, and I'm a terrible dancer, don't get me wrong, but I can dance better than that, you know, than that, That's religious dancing. Yeah, but when, when you think about the, like this, the, the beautiful, the beautiful pointing toward another, how many of you have ever taken like uh, dance classes before? Like ballroom dancing or anything like that, that kind of a thing, all right. Um, if you do take dance classes, like where you're dancing with a girl, and you're a dude, you have a lot of responsibility. It's a lot, of, a lot of pressure there. A lot, a lot of pressure there, right? Uh, because I mean, like you're 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 doing this thing. Uh, I don't know if I have it right. I don't know. And and you are you lead her, right? You 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 lead her. And so you're leading her, and the way that you, you lead her isn't with commands, like, I'm going to take two steps toward you. I'm going to take two steps back. I'm going to take two steps to the side. Right? This is not, I do not verbally communicate. And I don't throw her around either. Well, maybe in swing dancing you do, but I've never gotten that far. It's just these, like, gentle nudges. Her job is to feel, and your job is to lead. And so there's that, the, the push of the hand this way signifies that if you push this way and you pull this way, right? if, if you push back and release here, she knows that she's probably going into a, a spin and then coming back to you at this point, right? You can use two hands to push away, to pull back, right? All stuff that I'm very poor at when it comes to humans, right? But that we can all become good at when it comes to God because we're the bride and he's the bridegroom and we dance, he leads, and we follow. And his invitation to perfect oneness is not a joke. It, it, is, it is not a joke. But here's the thing about the dance, and this is the part that you might not like. I just want to make sure I'm including everything I'm supposed to. 
Yeah, yeah, I got it all. All right. So here's the, here's the deal. Is in the dance, um, in order to be in the dance, you have to be in the dance like God is in the dance. And the way that God is in the dance with himself, this one God and three distinct persons, and you'll notice through the definitions of perichoresis that we talked about, is, is, is it's the mutual indwelling. It's the towardness toward the other. And that's where things get sticky. Because with God, I mean, the, the dance is so beautiful and it's so full and it's so right. And it's, it's, God is com- so completely sufficient in and of himself. He's so solid in his identity that his ability to be completely about the other person, to be completely about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, there, there's no risk in it for him. When he invites you and I to join the dance, right, this is it right here. I mean, you see this. Like, you and I are this painting now. We are in, we are in Christ. So when Jesus prays that we would be one as he is one, that we would be perfectly one as he is in his Father and his Father is in him, then he, he's not praying a pipe dream there. But it, it requires us to receive from God an identity that is so rooted in who he is, right? That I can take up my part in the dance contained within him and I can focus here 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 and I am toward you and I am toward you and I am toward you, right? And I live my life like toward, right? Looking for, esteeming the glory of my brothers and sisters as we together esteem the glory of our Father, our Savior, our Counselor. And what keeps us from this is a loss of sonship. When when we start walking away from sonship, we start saying, well, who's going to take care of me? We start saying, well, who's going to, where's my significance going to come from? If If I'm all about you, and if I'm all about you, and if I'm all about you, how can I ensure that anyone is all about me? Like, who, who's, who's looking to care for me in this? And then when people look to care for us, we oftentimes say, please don't care for me like that. <laughs> love me, love me, love me. And then they love us, and then we're like, I don't want it like that. Thanks. When Jesus calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, it's important for you to understand that's not a parallel with first love. Loving yourself and receiving your sonship in Christ is not a matter of priority. It's a matter of quality. It's the way that you live your life. But it is not a matter of, I'm here, and I take care of me above everything else, and I ensure that I'm good, and then I can love you. Right? It's that we are together in this. I I wish I could make the room into a sphere, because that's really what the dance is meant to be. Which is just, do I have time for this? No, I probably don't. I do not have time for this, but it's fantastic, so I will. (laughs) And Adam, and Adam is perichoresis. You have this nucleus. You have the particles that are all swirling and moving around it, and the electrons and the protons and the neutrons and... I don't remember science very well because they don't teach that in seminary. But, you know, all of this is happening in and around this thing. And that's what's happening with us. 
Like, if we could just, like, take Cornerstone, like, 20 feet up in the air and whirl us around with, 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 like, rope or lights or something, and we could all stand in the middle of that with this whirling, swirling beauty and wind and light and, and stuff, you know? It was just, th- th- that's the idea of the perichoresis. The, the atom is the perfect, the building block of who you and I are. The smallest thing that we know is the perfect picture of perichoresis. Because it's this dance, it's this life-giving energy focusing toward, right? An electron by itself is nothing. It needs something to work with, to pull off of, to push against, right? This, it, it's, it's this beautiful, beautiful picture of who God is and of who we are in him. But as soon as we say, you know what, I'm, I'm not in that. Or as soon as we make false statements like this, I don't know the dance. Well, yeah, you do. Jesus said you do. You've been put in Christ. You might need somebody to help cultivate the dance. You might need somebody to help teach you how to dance. Right? You might need to be able to just completely shift your mind where I am not a dance. Remember Peter? Peter, are you a water walker? Nope. Five minutes later, Peter, are you a water walker? Yep. I'm not a good one but I am, right? It's, it's, it's that kind of an idea where you're receiving your sonship from God continually rooted and grounded in him so that how the dance goes really isn't what's most important, right? What it looks like really isn't the point, you know? And I'm a really bad dancer, but when I dance with my wife, you know, like if it's just her and I in the kitchen, you know, or the living room or whatever, and it's just, it's just me and her dancing. It just doesn't matter anymore at that point. You know? And I don't step on her feet then either because there's no pressure. Or the song Jump Around. I can handle that one too. <laughs> That's the beauty of the dance, right? I mean, being fully toward God enables and allows you and I to be fully toward one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. These are the two great commandments. And on these things hang all the law and the prophets. What's Jesus' heart for you? Jesus' heart for you is to be in him. To be one as he is one. This is not some pathetic notion of unity. Or of like, it's, it's not about that. It's about union with him. It's not about working out peace-loving relationships with one another. If we are in Christ together, if we are all in the dance that is God, then we all learn the same steps and the ways to walk together and the value of the same things, even though they're expressed uniquely. From, so you're going to love differently than I love. You're going to receive peace differently than I receive peace. You're going to walk in wisdom differently than I walk in wisdom but we are all following the same lead. And so there is harmony that comes. Right? There is beauty that exists in this dance. So to answer the question, how do I practically walk in my sonship? That's how. Did I help you? To be in Christ, to join the dance. Calvin called me this morning. Calvin's on the way to, uh, Calvin's doing, doing a cross-country prayer walk. He's in Cincinnati today. Um, and uh, he, he sends his greetings to you all. He called me this morning and said, hey, 
I got something for you. He's like, it's real short. I have no idea what's going on at Cornerstone today. Um, Are you preaching? Yeah, I'm preaching. Okay, well, tell them this. All right, this is what Calvin says. Not Calvin, this is actually, he just gave us some scripture. Song of Songs, chapter 2. He brought me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. He brought me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. When you and I stand in our sonship, stand rooted groundly and firmly in our sonship, allowing ourselves, receiving God's love, walking in his grace, walking in his truth, living from that rooted place of sonship, we are partaking of the divine nature. You are not an observer of the divine nature. You are a partaker in it. You have been sealed in the Holy Spirit, put into the kingdom of God. God's prayer for you is to be in him, to be perfectly one together, to join the dance, his dance, not create your own dance, right? not build all these different kinds of dances where, you know, that church dances like that, we dance like this, you know, and eh. I can't wait till somebody else learns our dance. You know, this, isn't, this isn't a sacrifice of the individual. This is a reception of more fully what it means for you to be you as a son of God. And as we live in our sonship, and as you live in your sonship, and I live in my sonship, and you live in your sonship, and we together pursue who we are in Christ, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, right? to love yourself, to receive the way that God views you, as we walk in that with this dance that just happens, it just happens. And there's this beautiful work. His banner over us is love. Folks, the kingdom is fine. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, forever conquering death, sin, and the grave. The kingdom is solid. Right? God's banner over us is not work harder. God's banner over us is not orphans. God's banner over us is not, man, I wish you didn't screw up so bad. God's banner over us is not shame. It is not guilt. You are not identified as a sinner. You are a saint. You are not estranged from God. You are brought into his family through adoption. You are in the dance. This is your place of belonging. For you to walk in sonship means that you join God's dance. That we join God's dance together. And his banner over us is love. 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 Nothing but love. Nothing but goodness. Nothing but grace and mercy. And you might say the same kind of things that I would say, which is that my life doesn't always feel like that. Right? My experiences don't lend themselves to that sometimes. The wounds that I carry certainly don't feel like that. And oftentimes, this dance is hard. And I would just simply say to you at that point that you are someone who is in process. And God is overjoyed to have you in process in his dance. You do not stay outside the circle practicing with the rest of the orphans and then jump in. Like, man, I hope I got it now. That's how I learned to do double dutch. Little known fact. 
No, I will not ever do it for you. <laughs> Second grade, East Coventry Elementary School. I liked this girl. Her name was Andrea Olson. I remember. Isn't that crazy? Uh, I remember the craziest things. And she did double dutch at recess. You don't just run up and jump in double dutch. If you do, you get smacked in the head. And it's very hard. And so what they do is they take you off to the side, and you learn with one rope, right? And you actually learn how to do the steps with, with, with one rope. And you look really dumb when you do it. And then somebody comes along, and they, they start slow. Right? And so you learn how to do like this sort of like rhythmic skipping thing. It's very dancing, very, very, very dancing. And then you're able to take part in the game. So when I was thinking about this, I was like, that's how we think of our Christian life. We think of our Christian life the way that I learned how to do double dutch, which is that you stay off to the side with the rest of the losers that can't do double dutch yet, you know, and you work on it, you know, and, and, other, and the people that can double dutch are making fun of you in the meantime, and yes, that does happen, um, you know, where you can't even get it, you know, with, with, with one rope, you know, like one rope, yeah, and look how slow the rope's going, yeah, this and that, and then and they smack you on the head on purpose, that kind of stuff, you know, until eh. eventually you get it, and then you get to hop in, and, and then everything's okay. No, with God, there is complete and full acceptance immediately, automatically. It is not about you staying on the outside until you clean yourself up, until you get yourself together, until you're able to wash yourself up and pick yourself up by your bootstraps enough that all that crap in your past that really wasn't that big a deal isn't bothering you too much anymore. You can sort of get past that as if that's ever possible and move on with your life and look like every other good, happy Christian that goes to church, pays their tithes, goes home, goes to work, pays their bills, takes care of their family, and then dies in the long run with all that crap still hanging on to them. What Jesus wants is for all of you and all your crap in the dance with him together because there's grace for it and there's love for it and there's goodness for it and you are not that. And while that might be a part of your story, that is not you. You are a dancer. You are a son. You are the bride of Christ. You are more deeply loved than you can possibly imagine. Or experience. The more you experience it, the more you know how much more there is to experience. That's you. And that's you in the dance. And that's what God desires. His family together in him. Perfect oneness. God, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for joining us to Christ, putting us in Christ, for sealing us in you. Continue to work in us, Father who we are, and what it means for us to know you as sons and to walk in your grace and love, to join your dance. In Jesus' name, amen. The, uh, this Trinitarian concept, this movement, this dance, this, this towardness, this action on the part of God, this ever-moving beauty that we're invited into, you know, the, uh, it's the core of, of who we are. It, we are not the core of who we are. God is the core of who we are. His activity, his initiative, right? his work, his goodness. And so keeping that as the focal point of where I draw my identity from, my friends, that is freedom. That is freedom. Because that means that you can derive your identity and your belonging and your worth from one who is perfectly good. 
from one who is without sin, right? From one who is completely redemptive, from one who is full of grace and mercy, from one who is, who is love and compassion and goodness. The scriptures inform us so deeply for the heart of our Father and how he's revealed these, this, this three in one. And I just want to leave you with one of those blessings from the end of 2 Corinthians. One of those places where, like, it's, it's easy to sort of, like, skip over. Like, oh, I'm finally done reading 2 Corinthians. <laughs> but this is a profound verse. This is a profound verse that I want to bless you with in benediction this morning as you think about what it means for you to be in the divine dance. So I'll take a posture of receiving, if you would. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let me say it again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen and amen. Blessings to you. Go with God.